Last week was um, Renewal Sunday, and actually, before I get started with that, I've got a disclaimer for you. Um, we're talking about some PG stuff today, so if you have small children, you may not want to hear that. Now would be the time. You don't have to. That's totally up to you, parents. That's your discretion, but um, just letting you know, um, we're, we're going to be talking about some kind of intense stuff, so... Uh, but anyways, as I was saying, last week was Renewal Sunday, and this I've been here almost two years now, and um, last year on Renewal Sunday, for whatever reason, I wasn't here, I was gone, um, so last week was my first Renewal Sunday, and it was lit, let me tell you, it was awesome. Um, the worship team pretty much brought the house down, and then Kenny does what Kenny does, and it's whatever, but... Um, but yeah, it was awesome, and we started our series, Behold, dot, 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 new, and Kenny gave me credit for that, and I can't take credit for that. I kind of came up with the idea, him and I discussed it, but then he came up with a name for it. I'm not creative enough to come up with a cool name like that, but, um, but yeah, so we started in that, and when I thought of a series like this, um, I kind of already had this message in my heart. I didn't have it planned out, but I knew I wanted to preach it, and so I kind of thought about basing the series around that, and it goes along with renewal, how God, like I said, is continually making things new. That's part of his nature, that's what he does, and but I'm going to jump right into it, I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some statistics for you, okay? In 2011, there was a study done, it was across all 50 states nationwide, they took um, 4,134 15-year-old boys and girls. It was almost exactly even 50% boys and girls. And they were 15 years old, like I said, which means they would have been about freshmen, sophomores in high school. And they followed them for almost five years. So through their freshman, sophomore years in college, they followed them through the age of 19. When they started the study in 2011, they asked them some questions, some pretty intimate questions. 42% of these 15-year-old girls admitted they had already had sex at least one time. 44% of males admitted to that. Now, as we go through these, I want us to remember the word admitted is a tricky word because you know it probably doesn't tell the whole story. There's probably a lot of these kids that even though this is an anonymous survey, they wouldn't have admitted to anything because they didn't want to admit it themselves. They were scared. They were ashamed of it. Maybe they didn't want to lose face with the person they didn't even know asking them the questions. But anyways, that's the percentage that admitted to it, 42% female, 44% male. By the time they were 18 years old, that number had increased to about 55% for both of them. 55% of 4,134 is 2,274. According to um, several other studies, more than 5.5 billion hours, so that's 5 comma 5 with 8 zeros, think about that number in your head, 5.5 billion hours of internet pornography was consumed in just 2018. 30% of all internet traffic in 2018 was pornography, so every time somebody clicked on something on a phone or a computer and data transferred from one place to another, 30% of the time it was pornography or pornographic content. Internet porn sites had more monthly visitors on average in 2018 than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. 
teen boys are first exposed to porn on average around 12 years old. Girls a little bit later, usually around 14. And the thing about that is a decent percentage of that time it was unintentional. That means it wasn't just the kids going to a computer and trying to find something. It was they saw something they weren't even trying to see, whether it be popping up on the phone of a com- or a computer of a friend, a family member, whether it be on a magazine, whether it be on television. Another study showed that 64% of people ages 13 through 24 admitted, again, there's that word, to looking at porn on at least a weekly basis. The point of all of this is not to make you uncomfortable, to make you squirm in your seats. Maybe it needs to make us uncomfortable, though. I don't know. Um, Because the point is, whether we want to admit it or not, and in the church we often don't, it's a problem. And it happens. And these statistics, by the way, before I forget, are almost no different between teens and young adults who go to church or are raised in church families and who don't. Almost no different. There was such a minute change in the percentage that they actually just counted it off to um, faulty surveying. They didn't even, they put it as an asterisk on the bottom of the page. And this is important to me because I know there's a lot of teens in here. And I think about the way teens think a lot because I spend the majority of my time with teenagers, between coaching, between being with our youth. I spend the majority of my time with teenagers. So that's what I think about. I think about the things they struggle with, the way that they think, the things that they need. And it's a problem. And I know it's a problem not only because I see it in them, but because I was a teenager and I've lived on this page. And I didn't know what to do. And I I had never really considered doing anything like this, but I heard a sermon um, where evangelist George Verwer did a speech at a conference in the mid-1980s, around 1985, and he had a burden that he was really was growing in him and had been for several years. And his burden was this. He had studied that in the church, there was a huge number of teens and young adults who had dreams for radical, active engagement in the gospel. That, it, that means they wanted to do more than come in on Sundays and sit in a pew or sit in a chair. They wanted God to actually be able to use them. And as those teens became young adults, as those young adults got kind of set into middle age and got older, an alarming number of them fell out of activity. So they fell out of church altogether or they resorted to just coming in and sitting in a pew. And George Verwer figured out that one of the biggest reasons, if not the biggest reason, was an overwhelming sense of guilt, shame, unworthiness, and uselessness because of sexual sin. And they didn't know how to deal with it because they had never been taught how to deal with it. In the South, on any given Sunday, you can throw a rock, and at the end of that rock is probably a church. Because, you know, in the Bible Belt, we're great Christians. We have a lot of churches, right? So you can do that. And chances are, it's a good chance you could go into that church, and the pastor... If he's not doing a sermon on it, he would at least bring up something about how bad sexual sin is, right? 
don't do this, don't do that. Keep yourself pure from this and that. And none of that's a lie. That's a good thing. I'm telling you, chastity is a great thing. It's a biblical thing. It's the way God intended for it to be, and it'll save you a lot of heartache. It'll save you a lot of hurt and a lot of junk that you really don't want to have to deal with. And if you're in this room and you you haven't fallen in one of the ways that I've mentioned or that we're going to talk about, good, don't. Do everything you can to run from that and keep it that way. But what these statistics show is that a lot of people have, whether we like it and want to talk about it or not. And if we as a church who are supposed to be showing God to people and and we're not we're not meant to just sit in here and once we leave, God's not with us anymore. Like this is where God is and he stays in here. No, we're supposed to bring him to the world. And if we don't talk about real issues, we are failing. And we have failed. I'm sorry, but we have. In this regard, we have failed. Because I've heard a million sermons my whole life from I can't tell you how many pastors about what not to do and how not to do it. But I was 20 years old before I listened to a podcast and heard somebody tell me about what I need to do if I have. And how I'm supposed to deal with it and how I'm supposed to keep my life from being a waste. And it's sad And I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can save some of you over here some heartache from that by hearing this now instead of having to wait till you're pretty much having to figure it out on your own. But George Verwer, it was interesting. He said, he he estimated that all of these kids falling out of church, falling out of active engagement in the kingdom, what it would lead to is this. They would go to college. They would get a practical education practical degree, then they would go, they would get a good job with nice hours, good money, good benefits, retirement, everything they want. They would work their years, then they would retire and they would go home. They would have their little projects that they tinkered with and whatever else, and then they would sit at night in their rocking chairs on their front porch, or they would sit in their recliner in front of their television, and they would waste away until they died. And then all that money they made at that practical job, they would leave as an inheritance to their kids to confirm their kids and their worldliness and continue the cycle. In other words, it would create a culture that revolved around having everything you needed and most of what you wanted within an arm's reach. To make that even simpler, the number one priority would be comfort. That's what that meant. Everything would revolve around comfort. That's the type of culture it would create. That's the type of culture the next generations would be born into before they even knew what was happening. That was 35 years ago. Look at where we are. I think George Verwer kind of knew what he was talking about. Because I remember graduating high school, and I got questions about what do you want to do, where do you want to go, and I gave the typical response. I have absolutely no clue, and that's an okay response. You've got time to figure it out, I promise. I still don't really know what I want to do, but it's fine. We'll go there later. Um... But I got that, and I would say, I don't know. And 90% of the responses I got were, get you something that makes good money. Get you something with good medical, where you have flexible hours. You can work in air conditioning. You don't have to be busy all the time. Then when I figured out I wanted to go into education, and people would ask me the question again, and I would tell them, I want to go into secondary education, they would go, you'll never make any money. You'll never be able to retire. First of all, thank you. I know that. appreciate the encouragement. 
But second of all, why is that the first thing we go to? Because that's all we know from the moment we're born. Look at any of the signs sitting right out here, and they all have to do with fulfilling your desires and being comfortable. Every single one of them. Because that's what's important, right? And what this all has to do with sexual sin is what that does, what that comfort does, is you allow it to be an excuse for being useless, for coming in on Sundays and doing nothing other than sitting in a pew. I may be useless, but at least I'm comfortable being useless. You make it easy for yourself. I make it easy for myself. That's what it's about. That's why that's important. And that's why we can't do it. And so real quickly, I'm going to start, and I'm going to talk about the guilt aspect of this. And this is going to, this little five-minute tirade I'm about to go on is going to sound bad. Hang with me. This is the beginning of the story. It's not the end, okay? Hang in there. Colossians 3, 5 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, so there's five. I've heard them called the five deadly sins before. I don't know what they're just sins. But... What you notice is the first four, or really all five of them have to do with sexual sin, but the first four, sexual immorality, duh. Impurity, passion, evil desire. It's pretty obvious right there, okay? So this is an issue. It's a real thing. It's a real deal. Verse 6, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So all this sin that we commit that makes us feel hopeless, it makes us feel unworthy, it gives us shame and guilt, We deserve to feel that way. That is what we've earned. We've earned unworthiness and hopelessness and shame and guilt. So what I mean by that is if in a moment of hopelessness, we were to go to God and say, God, I'm down, I'm hopeless, help me. And his response were to be, no, you sinned. I'm going to let you stay there. He would be completely just in doing that. And he would be no less of a loving, merciful, gracious, forgiving God. We've earned it. He's angry at us. As this says, his wrath is coming, and we've earned it. He should be angry at us. We have no argument. And it's not just, this is talking about these sins, but it's any sin. Don't be confused. Don't think any of us are going to, you know, get out safe. It's any sin, sin in general. That's the state we should be in. And that was short, but now I'm going to talk about the remedy to this. And I'm going to go to Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Now, I'm going to be moving around quickly. This is not going to seem like it connects very well, but I will. We're going to think through some of this. Logically, we're going to kind of piece it together. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Remember that, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. There's a record of our good and bad. Our bad is extremely long, longer than we could ever be able to fathom, and it is more than sufficient to damn us to hell for all of eternity. 
and God sees it. We're all naked and exposed, and we will have to give account one day. We're guilty, and he knows it. And the thing about it is, there's two things that God requires of us. It's that our sin be forgiven and our lives be righteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. We lost righteousness a long time ago. And we can't even stop sinning, much less forgive our own sin, right? So we're dead in the water. There is nothing we can do. But then I'm going to go back to Colossians. I'm going to read Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So, having forgiven us of all our trespasses, there's requirement one. The two requirements we couldn't take care of, God's taking care of one of them right here. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. So there's one. We're forgiven, but we're still not there. And I want you to remember the very end of that. I want you to remember he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame. Just kind of, I don't know if you're taking notes, just kind of mark that or kind of keep that in your head because you're going to need to remember that. And then now we're going to go to Romans, Romans 8. We're going to be looking at 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It was the likeness. He had no sin, but he was 100% man. He was just like us, minus sin. And so when he went to the cross, instead of us, where we should be, and we deserve, and we earned it, when he went there... He took our place. It was the likeness of sinful flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. There's two. Sin be forgiven, life be righteous. We couldn't do either one of them. And Christ did both of them for us. He has completed what we could have never dreamed of completing. But now I'm going to show you why all that matters and why all that's relevant in the context that we're talking about. Satan's going to come at you. And the thing is, he's going to come at you and remind you of all the stuff that you've done. That's what he does. And the thing about it is, he's telling the truth. You've done those things. I've done those things. We deserve to feel guilty. But here's the thing. Satan has the power to hurt us, to make us sick. He can make us go mentally haywire and see things on the walls and have delusions and all this kind of stuff. He can, um, he can torment us. He can give us depression and anxiety to the point we can't hardly get out of bed. He can even kill us. He can put us in the grave. But like the song says, he can't hold us there. Because Colossians 2, 13 through 15, like we just read, said when Christ was nailed to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed Satan and his demons 
from being able to hold us in the grave. So that guilt that you feel, and by the way, side note before I forget, guilt in itself is not, it's not a bad thing of itself. Understand, it's nerves for your soul. So if this is a hot oven, right, and I'm standing here, and I put my hand right here like this, but I have no nerves in my hand, the next thing I know I'm going to look down and have no hand, right? If I have nerves in my hand, I can touch it. Ow, that's hot. I can take my hand off. It'll burn that top layer of flesh right there, but I'll still have a hand, and that'll grow back. Guilt, in a way, is God's way of telling you what you did is not right. You don't need to do that. But living in a state of guilt and shame, allowing it to just eat at you every moment of every day, that's not healthy. But sometimes you can't help it. Sometimes you're just so weak and you feel so overwhelmed and you're so sorrowful for what you've done, you can't help it. We're not strong regardless of what we try to tell people and show people. We're not. And so here's the hope. I'm going to go to Micah now. It's a little book little prophet Micah 7 8 and 9 rejoice not over me O my enemy when I fall I shall rise when I sit in darkness the Lord will be a light to me so I've fallen Satan you're right I've done exactly what you said I've done and I'm guilty But even when I'm sitting in darkness, the darkness that God's told me I deserve, he's going to be a light to me. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. He's angry. He has a right to be angry. Because I have sinned against him, this is my favorite part, until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Not to me not against me, for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. God is angry, but he's not angry with a damning anger. He's angry with a fatherly, loving, disciplinary anger. When he makes you follow through with the consequences of what you've done. It's not his way of being done with you. It's his way of trying to draw you back. He's not through. And so when Satan attacks you, he's telling you the truth, but he's only telling you half, the, half of the truth because while you're guilty now, you won't be guilty forever and you won't be stuck in it. Not only, God hasn't made a way or, or God isn't making a way. God has already made a way. The battle's won, y'all. All we're doing is waiting to see it. And so, I hope we'll have the guts to be able to say that. The morning after, I, I, the sermon I was listening to, it was kind of along these lines, and he called it the morning after gospel. thought that was the coolest thing. Weeks after, days after, moments after, are you going to be able to say that? Are you going to be able to look in the face of Satan and say, you're right, but not for long? Here's the thing. And I know this is short, but that's okay. This is all I have to say. 
we may have to face the consequences of our sin, okay? And sometimes those consequences may be sickness. Sometimes those consequences may be, I, I don't know, they may be lost relationships, broken relationships. Maybe you lose jobs. Maybe it results in a child for you. Raise the child. If that's what you have to do, raise the child. I know that's easy for me sitting here saying that, never having to deal with that. But let's own up to the responsibility of what, we done, what we've done because the thing is, God hates all sin and he hates sexual sin and he hates lust and adultery and sexual immorality and he hates homosexuality and he hates abortion. But he loves you. He's not giving up on you because you made one mistake. He's told you that Christ has done what he understood you never could do. And he loves you. And he has a plan for your life that is so much greater and more powerful than any way you could try to screw it up. He is making you new. And it may not feel like it, and it may hurt. And man, sometimes, I'll be honest, it just sucks. I don't know if I can say that, but it does. He's not done with you, and he's not done with me. And he loves you. 